Hello, and welcome to Gilead. I'm Rebecca Anderson, one of the pastors here, and let's cut right to the chase. The sermon has plenty of foolishness in it, so there's no reason to muck around here. We are in the middle of a sermon series called Info Dump, stories of what we really, really, really can't stop talking about, even if it doesn't make that much sense. So here's the sermon from Sunday night, May 14, 2023. Fa, la, fa, so, fa, mi, la, so, fa, la, fa, la, so. So, la, fa, so, fa, so, la, fa. So, la, so, fa, mi, fa, mi, la, so, la, so, fa, la, so. So la fa mi la so la fa la so so fa. First of all, Vince preached in the fall and said that it is almost always cheesy as hell when a minister sings in their sermon. Hurtful. <laughs> that was hurtful, even though he sang in that sermon. I had sung in several previous sermons, although not, I think, here. And I think that he said, it's almost always cheesy as hell, made it worse, because it felt like he was definitely remembering me singing in sermons, and he wanted to give cheesy past me a pass, and now tonight he wanted to give cheesy future me a pass, but guess who's on sabbatical? That's right, Vince. Close parentheses. Here's how soulfage works. Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. It's a system of naming the relationships between notes. The notes themselves can move around because the relationships stay the same. Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. The relationship between the notes, interval. Do, that's a major arpeggio on a tonic chord. Do, re, do, that's a full step. Do, ti, do. That's a half step. That's mostly the smallest interval you're going to encounter unless you're getting fancy. Do, ti, do is one of the quickest ways to orient yourself in a new key once Adam is like, let's move it a little bit. Do, ti, do, now we're up here. Do, la, do. That's a sixth. That's the name of that interval. If you need help remembering it, it's the beginning of N, B, C, and N, B, C is probably actually so, mi, do, since it lands on kind of a resting place. That resting place is the tonic, the do, do, fa, do. That's a fourth, no, that's a third. Do, fa, here comes the bride. That's a fourth. So, and that's also probably so, do, 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 so, re, ti, do. Okay, I think we probably now understand exactly what I'm talking about. I feel like we're all on the same page pretty clearly about how solfage works. Good. Thanks for coming to my master class. Here's how you use solfage. When you look at a piece of music and you read music, you see those same relationships between notes, no matter what the do-ti-do, do-ti-do is. When you can see the intervals and you know the relationships they represent, before you play it on your oboe or whatever, you know what it sounds like. You can think in music. I looked at the piece of music and I did not think in music. I was in high school auditioning for a state choir. I knew that sight reading was part of the audition, but I had prepared for it mostly by thinking about it with fear. Like maybe I 
played along on the piano with some music that I knew to sort of diagnostically see how close I could get to sight singing, it seemed totally opaque, like a thing you either knew how to do or didn't know. And nobody at that age taught me any differently. I was in a large classroom at UMass Amherst, University of Massachusetts, a place I didn't go to college. I was taking a class with a bunch of music majors, a class that was required for them and elective for me. Aural skills, yes, ha ha ha, aural skills. Aural, it's why I always over-enunciate it and point to my ear, aural, every single time I say it, relating to the ear or sense of hearing, aura plus L, aural. Gary Karpinski was the professor at the front of the room, classic edition professor, bald, uh, bearded, jacketed, and he was teaching us how to think in music, to learn those relationships and their names and to take them inside ourselves so we'd recognize them. Once to demonstrate a particular interval, instead of choosing here comes the bride or a TV jingle, he gave composer, symphonic work, movement, instrument, line, and he sang the thing in solfege. And I was gripped with wanting to know music that well. Like maybe I should study solfege for the rest of my professional life. The Apostle Paul's thing about the body of Christ kind of boils down to it takes all kinds. A body needs as much variety as it can get. A couple of hands, a couple of feet, if things work out that way and you can get them. Ears to hear or eyes to take in ASL. Eyes to see or fingers to read with. A head, pretty much everyone gets one of those. A sense of smell barring COVID or something. If all parts were the same, Paul asks, how would anything get done? Paul picked up this metaphor that had been going around the ancient world for a while already, and he democratized it, or tried to. The people in Corinth who heard Paul's letter would have recognized the metaphor. They might have even recognized the same, I don't, do we do this here? Probably we do. They would have recognized the same kind of like church funny reading, like if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? Like that's only funny in some churches. If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? What would have been new in the church in Corinth was Paul's insistence that the body in that metaphor, in the church, in that body, in that metaphor, in the church, there is no hierarchy. That was what was new. It was new because in the ancient, familiar, pre-existing metaphor, everyone understood that obviously there's a hierarchy. That's part of the metaphor. The brain is clearly more important than the appendix. Like, we still don't think the appendix does anything. The metaphor was about the relative value of every part. And often, I won't say always, but often, the metaphor as it existed included the, included the idea that the parts ought, therefore, to just be kind of satisfied with their role as an appendix or an ear, and let the brain and the heart and the lungs do their thing. The important parts do their thing. That's the real work of being a body. The song I sang at the beginning, Cheesy as Hell, yes, Vince, wherever you are, is something else besides or, or beyond solfage. It's a shape note song which is a style and system of writing music that started in the UK in the late 1800s, but took root, took hold in the southern US. And it only uses like three and a half syllables, fa, so, la, and sometimes me, 
each of which, shocker, has its own shape. Shape note music was supposed to like democratize and facilitate group singing. But it, if it ever did that, the project was short-lived. Now shape note music is the purview of handfuls of earnest Quakerly types like myself who gather in places like church basements and the Logan Square Comfort Station and pretend to be open to new people but aren't really. As a person who reads both common Western musical notation and shape note notation, I once spent a whole evening singing so tensed up that I had a migraine the whole next day. Incredibly stressful, not democratized. Shape note music is sung kind of without nuance. It's kind of shouted, actually. Someone picks a song and then stands in the middle of a square of singers and sets the pitch, the key, and, and like an orchestra tuning up, you hear people kind of honking, no, so, no, 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 and you sing through the song once on solfege, and then you launch into the words. And if you're at the Logan Square Comfort Station, you do that kind of aggressively fast. And if you're a person whose name I'm redacting at the Logan Square Comfort Station, you lean over to me during the break and tell me that I'm using too much vibrato. But if you go to Logan Square with your best friend who also loves singing and is game to muddle through something that neither of you quite knows how to do, you get to ignore name redacted and make incredible music. One danger of Paul's body metaphor is that it idolizes unity, accord. After all, Paul was writing this letter in Corinthians to a pretty diverse group of people who were experiencing some disagreements among themselves and some differentiation from Paul himself. And at the very beginning of the letter, in chapter 1, Paul appealed to them by the name of Jesus that they should all be agreement and there should be no divisions in them and they should be united in the same mind and the same purpose. And maybe some of them, like some of us, thought, oh, sure, unity and accord. Don't stir up any trouble. Just hold your tongue. Same old, same old metaphor. Maybe some of them, like some of us, were used to people preaching civility and peace and agreement, agreement agreement, you guys, as a means of silencing opposition, silencing resistance, erasing important difference. Another danger of Paul's metaphor is that while it was intended to democratize, intended to demonstrate how the body of Christ was distinct from the Roman body politic with its obvious hierarchies that everyone understood, while Paul's metaphor was meant to democratize along with so much else of what Paul wrote, some of you are teachers and some of you offer care and some of you preach, while it was meant to democratize, it may, especially in these late days of capitalism, uh, idolize specificity in the form of expertise. We might be in danger of hearing it as exhortation, which is another good Pauline word. Some of you should get really good at teaching some of you should perfect your activism. Choose one thing and stick to it. Get clear on what's important and on what you love and hone those skills. A danger is that some of us may end up thinking specificity and expertise are the only things worth pursuing, the only thing that makes a thing worth doing, the only thing that makes the body work, the only thing that makes it sing. I made it into the state choir so apparently sight singing wasn't that important in high school. I took a bunch of voice lessons and music classes in addition to aural skills in college. And after college, I even ended up with a very fancy voice teacher for a while. It was much fancier than I warranted. 
She had debuted at the Metropolitan Opera in 1961. She had lived her life there and at City Opera and La Scala in Vienna and here in Chicago at the Lyric. She originated the role of Susanna in Carl Carlisle Floyd's opera called Susanna. And now she was retired and I was standing in her living room waiting to sing. What have you brought me, she asked. The Emily Dickinson song cycle by Aaron Copeland. Oh yes, she said. She had this little tinkling laugh. I've sung those songs many times with Aaron. <laughs> and it occurred to me that I was quite seriously out of my depth. But throughout that fall and winter, I went to her house and tried to follow instructions like lift your palate and imagine your voice out in front of you, a pearl rotating in the air, which is a difficult instruction to follow, especially when my voice had a little something I couldn't work around, an unpearl-like roughness. Once, months into studying with her, I asked Phyllis Curtin, who I encourage you to Google when you get home so you can really kind of sit with the shame of this. I asked Phyllis Curtin, uh, I don't know, out of hopefulness or dreaminess or the blissful ignorance of being 23, I stood there in my homemade dress looking out her window and asked, where do I fall in the range of singers you've worked with? <laughs> and Phyllis, kind, straight-backed, pearl-voiced Phyllis said, probably the lower 50%. <laughs> and the warmth of it, you know, the warmth of standing there, the heat of it, I mean, and simply taking it in from somebody who had real worldwide assessment to offer that, what, I wasn't cut out for the Met? Like, what was more embarrassing to me, that I asked or that her answer somehow felt like news? Had I, until that moment, thought that I was a still undiscovered world-class operatic voice? I stood there and I took it in, quickly. Because at some point, like almost right away again, we started to sing. When I looked into it this week, it turns out that Professor Gary Karpinski is very, very, very good at what he does. He's like the expert on aural skills and on teaching aural skills and about how specifically college-age students learn aural skills when they're doing so for the first time. He's not just good, he's the best. And I, I mean, not only did I not study solfage for the rest of my life, I slept through the final for Gary Karpinski's class, a final that he had warned us repeatedly in no uncertain terms not to miss, for which there would be no makeup options. But in fact, he extended me grace, and so I stood one-on-one -on -one with him in his office, making up that final. I don't remember the grade I got. The name of the shape note tune for reason that I sang at the beginning, for reasons I don't know, is Africa. Isaac Watts wrote the lyrics based pretty loosely on my money for, on uh, uh, Isaiah 49. The tune is by William Billings and one of my Little House on the Prairie friends, another info dump topic. Uh, one of my friends, when I told her that it was my favorite, she said, oh, sure, one of the greatest hits of the 18th century. <laughs> Basic. In the chapter after the body metaphor, Paul continues his greatest hits. Next up is the gift of love and love is patient, love is kind. And when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. Now I know only in part 
Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And the greatest of these is love. It's cheesy as hell. But sometimes when what I want is knowledge, what I want is expertise, what I'm left with, what I'm given is love. Now shall my inward joy 